Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We're so glad you are joining us for episode 151. Uh, we're recording this Sunday, November 7th at 3 o'clock p.m. Pacific Standard Time because Daylight Savings Time is over. Uh, I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, Todd and Zach. Um, are you fans of Daylight Savings Time? I keep on hearing all this, let's get rid of it for good and... I don't know. I like it. I think it adds a little unpredictability to life in an otherwise predictable world. I like that tomorrow the school day will start when it's not dark outside. That's what I like about daylight savings time. It's like, you know, you're going along in just a normal year. And then, you know, the Broncos beat the the Bill. No, Cowboys. And the Bills lose to the, to the Jaguars. It's like that. In the Josh Allen Bowl. Shout out yeah, to Josh that's, Allen, that's, that's the wherever NFL you are. Of the daylight savings time. A little surprise here and there. Yeah, yeah. Todd, congratulations. Your Braves won the World Series. Oh, yeah. yeah. That is uh, That was a great night. I smoked my uh, Victory Patron cigar that I've been holding on to since 2014, <laughs> waiting for one of my teams to win the title. So, <laughs> what did, did you buy that leading up to Super Bowl 49? Yeah. And then since, you know, UW lost in the final or in the playoffs and Gonzaga lost twice in the national championship game, you know, I, I didn't have anything to celebrate until the Braves. Unless I counted North Carolina winning the championship, but they beat Gonzaga, so I didn't feel right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Well, make sure you are subscribing, rating, reviewing all over the Internet. You can find us. Uh, wherever you find your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, Spotify. We're also on YouTube. Find us wherever. Uh, Zach, what are you drinking? In honor of uh, the great uh, Super Bowl MVP quarterback, Joe Flacco, I'm having some Flacco <laughs> Spanish wine. Now, I have a question for you guys. Where does Joe Flacco currently play? Uh, he currently rides the bench for the New York Jets. That is yeah. correct. I I did not know that until I Wikipedia'd that. I was I would have gone with the Eagles. Wasn't he on the Eagles at some he, point? He was signed by the Eagles. They traded him uh, after uh, after Zach Wilson got hurt. How is he even on the bench like during the games like for the Jets? He's apparently fourth string if he's not even above Josh Johnson. I, I yeah, it sounds like he's like learning the offense so he can be an asset, but. I don't know. I'm on the Mike White bandwagon. Mike I, White I think, all the way. Yeah, j just trade Zach Wilson now. Mike White's your franchise quarterback, and he had the spirit, the free time to to write the White Lotus too. I mean, the guy is a magic man. He can do so many things. I was gonna go with School of Rock, but oh, okay. You know, well that too. I'm Chuck and Buck. <laughs> I mean, will the real Ned Schneebly please stand up? Uh. <laughs> uh. Todd, what are you drinking? Uh, I have some Kings Creek Black Label Tennessee Sour Mash Bourbon Whiskey. I just bought it like an hour ago, and it's really smooth. I'm not really a fan of Sour Mash necessarily, but this one's actually pretty good. Do you have any more of that sake from last week? Well, I get my the answer would be no, but 
I think that should make a reappearance on the show sometime. Yeah, and that I mean, Saki I, did you well last week, Todd. Yeah, I got pretty rowdy at the end. <laughs> uh, well, I went to Ridge Walker uh, this afternoon and I picked up one of my favorite beers that they have. This is their their wheat and the giant peach. So they just took their wheat ale, threw some peaches in it. It's pretty awesome. I like this one. I think this may have been one of the uh, one of the options at our uh, at our top 100 reveal party. I, I can imagine there were a lot of options there. There were. Except for food. There were options for We've been we'll, over we'll, this. We'll, okay. we'll debate this. <laughs> All right. On to what we've been watching. And we are going to start with Zach. What have you watched? All right. So I have a new number one movie of the year. I Both of you guys know. Uh, I texted. I I couldn't hold. I try to not say what I've been watching to try to get some suspense in the podcast. It's like daylight savings time. You got to have a little bit of unpredictability. But I saw this movie and it was so freaking good that I had to tell both of you. And I hope you've seen it since. It is the documentary The Rescue, directed by uh, Jimmy Chin and Chai Vasirli. I I don't know if I pronounce her name correctly. They're the co-directors of Free Solo, which was one of my top ten movies of the 2010s. And like Free Solo, this is an amazing uh, documentary about some very super brave people uh, who uh, engage and interact with nature. In this case, it is a group of cave divers from England who look like they're out of the cast of the full Monty. They're very middle-aged. They got white hair. They don't really look like they're in shape. But where they are called upon in this documentary is uh, in 2018, there was a huge international incident in Thailand where basically during monsoon season, this cave had flooded and stranded 12 uh, preteen boys, a soccer team and their coach um, in this cave. And it became an international event. The Thai military tried to get involved, but none of them knew how to navigate uh, caves that were flooded. So they had to call in these guys from Britain and do it. And so the documentary um, is this kind of amazing story about how they had to um, you know, navigate these these flooded areas of the cave, but also work, co- uh, co- cooperate with Thai authorities in this international relief effort um, when, you know, they didn't even know whether these kids were alive or not. And once they actually were able to reach the kids, then it became an issue of, you know, these kids are not equipped to, to, do- to you know, swim three miles back to the surface. They're starving to death. The oxygen tanks, the, the oxygen tanks. I, I told Terry, it's like Apollo 13, okay? This movie has like one messed up thing after another. It's a it, it occurs over like two weeks. They kind of have like a day three, day four thing like in Apollo 13. It is an amazing documentary. It, it reaffirms, you know, every, all hope in people, the goodness of people, that the, that so many people got involved with the rescue of the, these children. You know, you think you know the story. It made national news when it happens. It's a great, uh, 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 you know, amazing achievement. But um, to really look at all the obstacles and hurdles that these people had to overcome, both in terms of just the practical uh you know, rescue, but also the kind of, like I said, the, the linguistic cultural differences. Uh, the documentary does an amazing job. Now, what's interesting is that there's another documentary being made for Netflix about this very same incident. And that documentary focuses on the kids. This documentary, The Rescue, did not interview any of the survivors because Netflix acquired the rights to the other documentary. So it's basically like a uh, fire festival type situation with competing documentaries. I don't know any documentary that, that could pass this one. This is an extraordinary film. My new number one of the year four stars see it if you can it's in limited release uh, in theaters only but it is absolutely astonishing there, there's like a lot of 
like reenactment footage that they use, right? There's some, but it doesn't it doesn't fit. There's also some actual footage too. I mean, they did bring some cameras along in the I assume like some GoPros in their in their wetsuits. And so the recreated footage feels very organic. It doesn't feel mm. like Errol Morris necessarily. It feels very seamlessly edited. Um, and uh, a lot of it was footage from the actual event. Awesome. Yeah, I might I might get a chance to check that one out next weekend. We'll see. We'll see. It, it's I, I've got to I've got to travel for it. So we'll we'll see if I get to it. Yeah, I hope awesome. it gets remembered at Oscar time. I mean, Free Solo won the Oscar a few years ago. These filmmakers are amazing at what they do. Really looking at people with just tremendous courage um, in uh, you know the kind of natural environment surroundings. This was also produced by Na National Geographic, but it's way beyond you know any kind of nature documentary. It's it's impactful and awesome. Yeah, cool. All right, Todd, you're next. Uh, my Matt Dillon movie of the week was the 1987 movie called The Big Town which is directed by Ben Bolt and Harold Becker. Uh, Matt Dillon plays this guy, J.C. Cullen, who is like a crapshooter in Chicago in the 1950s, and he gets himself in some trouble because he sort of falls for the stripper wife of like the notorious gangster. The gangster's played by Tommy Lee Jones, and the wife is played by uh, Diane Lane. And it also gets more complicated because he has another affair with the uh, someone played by uh, Susie Amos, which who's uh, you might know from the Usual Suspects, and there's this other plot about how like his gambling prowess is sort of being used by uh, Bruce Dern and Lee Grant, who they they have like this like really dangerous past and like some sort of connection to the gangster that flares up throughout the movie. Uh, the movie is kind of a mess, but it looks really good. Matt Dillon looks like Harley Kiner, uh, but Bruce Dern is awesome in this. Though, if we had this podcast in 1987, I guarantee that he would have been the subject of what I've been watching because like some of these <laughs> movies, are, I mean, he's awesome in this era. Tommy Lee Jones somehow is good as a gangster, even though I never would have thought that. The cast is is really the reason to watch it, because the plot's pretty convoluted, but watching the actors really sort of makes it click. Um, I mean, because, I mean, even if you don't understand the intentions of the characters, it's just fun to watch the actors. And it has this, like, dichotomy of being, like, a low-key mob movie while also being, like, this almost uh, detective noir-ish mystery kind of thing. I don't know why all the movies in the 80s, especially the ones starring Matt Dillon and Mickey Rourke, were all, all like, uh, like so in love with the 50s. Like, every one of them is, like, paying homage to that time or set in that time. Because I think this is the third straight 1950s set Matt Dillon movie I've watched. This one's okay, but nothing too special. Two and a half stars, like most every other Matt Dillon movie. Nice. Nice. You're, you're sticking with Matt Dillon, even even though it, it's, a, it's a tour through mediocrity, huh? I mean, they're fun. They're fun movies, but okay. I mean, I'm not just, I'm just not, and some of them are really good filmmakers, but I just can't, a lot of these, I, I can't actually recommend someone that's actually seeking out because a lot of them aren't actually that easy to find either. But yeah, I love Matt Dillon. Nice. Nice. I still All say right. you should have gone with Mickey Rourke, but uh, I, you know, there's, there, there's overlap. It sounds like. Yeah, Matt, well, he, Matt, Mickey Rourke's not in this, but yeah, Mickey Rourke also does have like 300 movies that are made every year. Did Matt Dillon ever make an amazing Independent Spirit Awards speech? I feel like there's, you know, a, a possibility he's the type of actor that could have got up there drunk and made some great ramble, rambling. I don't remarks. know what he would have won a Spirit Award for. Maybe Drugstore Cowboy. I would have to. Oh, yeah. I would have to go look, look at that. All right. So my watch for this week, my Oscar anniversary watch goes back 10 years. 
Uh, it is a animated nominee. It is a foreign language animated nominee. I'll put it that way and see if that you can get that. 2011 foreign language animated nominee. I think there might have been a couple of them that year, now that I think about it. That wasn't Waltz with Bashir, was it? It was not Waltz with Bashir. It was not nominated for animated. Anything? I, it was It was one of two. It was one of two <laughs> that were nominated. Chico and Rita? Chico and Rita. Oh, Good call. Nice. Yep, Chico and Rita. The other one was A Cat in Paris, which I watched earlier this year. Uh, anyways, Chico and Rita is really a fascinating movie. Uh, directed by, uh, I'm going to go with my tour through the, the Spanish names here, directed by Tono Orando, Javier Marshall, and Fernando Trueba. And it was written by Ignacio Martinez de Pizun and Fernando Trueba. There you go. There's my, there's my Spanish for you. High Not school bad. Spanish paid off. Uh, so Chico and Rita uh, is kind of a classic love story. It kind of feels like an animated Latin American La La Land in a lot of ways. Uh, you have Chico, who is a, uh, a a great piano player in Cuba, and he meets one night at the nightclub, meets Rita, this amazing singer, and he realizes that she is the perfect, uh, one, the perfect woman, and two, the perfect singer for what he wants to be able to do musically as well. So it's it's his perfect match in in more than one way. And so... He, he befriends her, he woos her, uh, and they they become an item. But everything always seems to go wrong for Chico and Rita. And er, nothing ever seems to work out right for them. Some of it is, is Chico's fault. Some of it is just uh, circumstance in general. Uh, and it's kind of this, this tragic love story that, that kind of goes, goes back and forth. Um, the animation is very basic in its um, in its style, yet at the same time, extremely intricate and detailed, especially when you see like some of the cityscapes of of Havana and New York City and places like that. It it is beautifully drawn. Uh, and uh, and the ending is amazingly sweet and and wonderful. I'm giving it three stars. It's a great movie. Uh, I will say I think it is it has the most um, animated nudity I have ever seen in my life uh, is found nice. in this movie. So uh, so there's that. But uh, it, it's just a, it's just a beautifully sweet movie and uh, and pretty amazing. So Chica and Rita, uh, three stars. And I think that's the last one of that animated l- list I needed to watch. So, I was so give me your rundown, it. Terry. Yeah, I was looking at it here. I think I'd probably say A Cat in Paris is my favorite. Um, it was a bad group that year, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. This is the year Rango won. So I'm going to go Cat in Paris 1, Chico and Rita 2, Puss in Boots 3, Rango 4, Kung Fu Panda 5, Kung Fu, Kung Fu Panda 2, 5th. Kung Fu Panda 2 is pretty good, though. It I... is. It is. I mean, all these, none of them are bad. They're just all in that two and a half to three star range yeah. and Rango won, I think mainly because it was Gore Verbinski and Johnny Depp. But um, I, I think it was inspiring to have a cat in Paris and Chico and Rita in this lineup. And they're the two best. So one of them should have won. Yeah. Cool. All right. So that's what we've been watching. 
Uh, if you want to see watch that one, it is available on Canopy. So if you have Canopy, you can see Chico and Rita. Time to get into our featured reviews. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zack movie ever made. You gotta see it. Movie reviews. And we have two. There are two big releases that came out this week. And two of us are going to talk about one of them. And the other two of us are going to talk about the other one. But there's... Yeah. I'm going to talk <laughs> about both sense. of them. Yeah, it, you it only teach math, math for a living. So, I yeah. only teach math for a living. <laughs> uh, so we're going to start by talking about the big, big release, which... Uh, apparently blew up the box office this week i was looking at that number earlier today like 70 um, or 80 million yeah 70 or 80 million 160 million worldwide uh big numbers and it should be big numbers because it is one of the more high profile marvel films that have come out simply because what is chloe zhao the the most independent of independent filmmakers going to do with a marvel movie and that's what we found out this weekend with Eternals. Five years ago, Thanos erased half of the population of the universe. But the people of this planet brought everyone back with a snap of a finger. The sudden return of the population provided the necessary energy for the emergence to begin. we have seven days we're eternals we came here seven thousand years ago to protect humans from the deviants why didn't you guys help fight thanos or any war, all the other terrible things throughout history. We were instructed not to interfere in any human conflicts unless deviants are involved. By who? We need to find the others. I haven't seen some of them for centuries. Hello. This is what the end of the world looks like. At least we have front row seats. You know what's never saved the planet? Your sarcasm. We have loved these people since the day we arrived. When you love something, you protect it. Fall collection. Ikea. 
Todd, I'm going to go to you first. You are you, going. You got to start this one. I, I can't even explain this plot. Oh gosh, I got to start this. Okay. I started last week. Yeah, but I was going to start the next one since I wrote a review on it. Okay, I'll start <laughs> talking about the Eternals. Okay, I, I think I can explain the the Eternals. We'll see here. So, <laughs> the Eternals. Yes, uh, directed by Chloe Zhao, all star, insane cast. Uh, Richard Madden, Angelina Jolie, Selma Hayek, Kit Harington, Kumail Nanjiani, Brian Tyree Henry, Barry Keegan. Uh, let's see here. Who am I missing? Bill Skarsgård, uh, apparently. I, I don't know who he was in it. Uh, Gemma oh, he Chan. He was uh, the, the, I don't know, the lanky monster looking thing. Oh, okay. okay. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, and th- there's a couple others in the in the main group here, like uh, Ma Dong Suk and uh, Lauren Ridloff, Leah McHugh, people that aren't necessarily household names, but they're very good in this movie. Um, and they are the Eternals. And so the premise of the Eternals is with like if you think the first phase of the MCU going with like this Titan Thanos that can snap his finger and kill half of the civilization is going big. The Eternals is going bigger as we're going to uh, the level of celestials who build worlds and they they're that's their job. They, they live out in the universe and they build galaxies and planets and stars and all this stuff. And there are these beings called uh, deviants who disrupt and destroy these planets that are, are created. So the Eternals are sent to these uh, planets to save civilization from these other, from these heavenly beings called deviants. And this whole cast is, uh, is the Eternals that have been sent to Earth. And they've been here for 7,000 years. They showed up in 5,000 BC in Mesopotamia and they have been fighting the deviants. And the last of the deviants, as they thought, died in 1500 in what's now mexico it they showed up in the middle of like the the fight between the aztecs and the colony colonists and and things and so for the last 500 years the eternals have been living very uh quiet lives um just waiting for their their orders of what they're to do next the leader of them is ajak played by selma hayek uh the strongest of them is icarus played by richard madden and uh, the greatest uh, warrior of them all is Thena, played by Angelina Jolie. They have very mythological names because the idea is Greek mythology and all that is based on them because they were around when Greek mythology was started. This is the most unique of any of the Marvel movies in that. And it's all because of Chloe Zhao, because this is who Chloe Zhao is. She's not this flashy director she's going to make a quiet or going to try and make a quiet subdued movie kind of like Nomadland and The Writer which are which are her two last two movies which are brilliant uh and this movie is much more about character development than it is about big action sequences uh it might be the first Marvel movie ever where the battles are not the the focal point it's who these characters are and the decisions that these characters have to make. Um, one of the main, uh, the main uh, character that we really focus on a lot is Gemma Chan's character, Cersei. Uh, each one of these uh, Eternals has a different power. Um, and and they, as they fight the, the Deviants, 
but uh, there, there's a quite a twist that happens where everything is kind of flipped on its head and they don't really know if what they've been fighting for is really what they should be fighting for. Um, it takes itself very seriously. One of the more seriously taken uh, Marvel movies, like almost to like the first two Thors in that sense and just how it takes itself seriously. But I think it works in this where it didn't necessarily work in the first two Thor movies um, because it's Chloe Zhao. It is beautiful to look at the, the scenery, the, the visuals, the cinematography are amazing. Um, and maybe because she's not necessarily an action director, the action was not necessarily the focal point, but you can tell this is going to be like one of the staples of what the, of what the MCU is going to be doing moving forward. And so they spent a lot of time making sure we knew who these characters were. Um, a lot of people kind of bash this movie. I know um, I got a text from Adam uh, that today saying that one of his predictions for the decade came true. And that is that we have our first rotten MCU film. But I think it's just because it's so different than any other MCU movie. I think it's the best MCU movie we've had this year so far of the three that we've had. Because uh, because it's different, because we're we're learning who these characters are, and it's the least MCU of the MCU so far. I I'm really concerned, or not necessarily concerned. I'm curious to see how this goes with the MCU moving forward because I'm realizing there's a reason the first phase had all the really popular famous ones, and I'm kind of looking at what's left and saying there's a reason these ones aren't as known because they're not as interesting, but this one was interesting. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a fascinating watch. I'm giving it three stars. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at with this. Um, I will say what possibly the, the most distracting thing of the entire movie is you had a love triangle between uh, Kit Harrington and Richard Madden fighting over a character named Cersei. Uh, that was really odd. <laughs> Since you had, it's Jon Snow and Rob Stark. And Cersei is, yeah. So in, if you don't know Game of Thrones stuff. Which Todd doesn't. But anyways. Three stars. I enjoyed this one. It, it's different. But that that's a good thing. Todd, how about you? Woof. That was, okay. This movie's bad. I... Wow. I, I I think there are way too many characters to follow. Like Guardians of the Galaxy also was not very well known, but it I mean it made it work with all the with all the so many main characters because one of them was a raccoon, one of them was a freaking tree. Like, but here there's way too many characters, and you don't have any connection to anyone, even though it is absurdly long. You just don't ever get to know anything about any of the characters, and that that's a problem. And I don't think hey, there's any Chloe true. Zhao in this. There, like I think the only Chloe Zhao parts in this there's like one like monologue on a porch that feels like a chloe zhao scene and like there's one montage near the end but other than that i don't feel like there's anything that that she brought to the to the table here and i i don't know i mean i feel like this movie is almost a parody of the kind of movies that it that it's trying to be like especially when it starts like you have camille nanjiani is like sitting there he's got a smirk on his face like during an intense battle scene it's just atrocious and i love camille nanjiani but it was like I was like, wow, this is this looks like a, a Saturday Night Live sketch or something. And Brian Tyree Henry, like he fades into the background a lot, but he's also just sort of awkward when he's actually speaking. I think Barry Keegan is the best part of the movie because he 
I feel like he understands the source material and what the movie is trying to go for, similar to when he appeared in The Green Knight. Like, I mean, he's just as, I mean, he's a great actor. And, like, I, I feel like he understands that era and he understands what, like, what he's doing. Other than, And all the other actors don't really, other than maybe Angelina Jolie, which I feel like I just wanted more of her because she's the only actor that looked like she knew what she was doing in the action scenes. Like, I mean, I know I said Emily Blunt and Charlie Theron, like, were, like, the queens of action now, but... I feel like Angelina Jolie just like yeah she's still like the majority stakeholder in that um in in that, in that category because I mean she, I mean she's awesome, but the characters don't have anything original like none of their powers are interesting like they're all X Men ripoffs yeah I mean they even make like the uninteresting main character in the movie is like okay yeah they even make a joke that he's Superman because that that is ba- basically all he is and it's I mean it's yet another movie that looks like a, like the nineteen nineties Power Rangers movie the costumes are corny and ugly. And I, I think it drags along because the plot is incomprehensible. I couldn't even have described it as well as you did, but I feel like you also made it make no sense. I, I The Deviants also look horrible. They look like the monsters in the Tomorrow War. I think it's a bad movie. It's one and a half stars. It's the most, like, oh. I don't give a shit about this world that I've felt since the first Thor. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, I can see that. Uh, I think... I don't necessarily there were moments where I was like okay this is kind of dragging and I could see what it was trying to do but I thought some of the dialogue wasn't great like like that was probably the weakest part of it was when the actors were not great either that's the problem it, it reminded me of a Shyamalan movie where it's just like the dialogue isn't really working and the actors don't really try except for Barry Keegan Keegan is great in this like but I mean other than that like none of them are good I, I liked what Kumail brought to it. I, I thought I thought the Oh come on. It was it was fun. Yeah, he had what like he a smile on his fun. face while he was like shooting her two kins. And I'm like, this is yeah, stupid. I, I, I that's how exactly how I described it to my wife is is Kumail could shoot Hadoukens uh from Street Fighter. Um and he was he was dancing like uh in Mumbai because yeah. he was because he was making a movie about one of the other eternals. Like I was just like, This is stupid. <laughs> Gilgamesh, I think, might have been my favorite. But for the longest time, I thought it was the same actor that played Wong in Doctor Strange. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, he did, he did sort of look like him. But no, that's the guy that from, like, uh, what's he in? Like, The Good, The Bad, and The Weird? And, uh, oh, okay. He's, in a, he's, he's another pretty famous Korean actor. I, I think, I, I think you, you kind of miss this movie, though. I, I think it, it's, it's better than you're giving it credit for. So you said it's the best of the year. I think Shang-Chi is, like, potentially the best... If I watch it again, it could be the best movie the MCU has done at all, like, overall. But, I mean... I need I to know, watch that, Shang-Chi that's... again. I I know I need to watch Shang-Chi again. Um, And I, I, liked, I liked it, but I didn't like how comedic it tried to make it. Um, This one, it, it, it kind of went away from that that wink wink at the camera that all MCU movies do. And I kind of like that change of pace, but at the same time, like I said, I'm a little concerned for what they're going to be doing moving forward. And if we're just going to keep getting these, these characters that are going to be harder and harder to access because they're not the name brands that we're used to. I don't know. Well, they bring one in on the closing credit scene, right? I mean, that's yeah. It's pretty clear whose voice that was. Yeah. Anyways, 
Can I review both of your reviews since I didn't see this movie? Sure, sure. I, I want I want you to see this movie and tell us and break this tie because obviously we have. Okay. One. Well, Chloe Zhao obviously a brilliant filmmaker. This is not. I would. I will agree. I would rather see another Nomadland than an Eternals two. So yeah. I would rather her get back to what she was doing. But I'm glad she got the opportunity. I'm just upset that I didn't cash in on like the plus one twenty that Barry Keegan was going to be Todd's favorite Eternal. That was like <laughs> easy money. Well, of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, I mean, they, they kind of reminded me of the Italian job group, and he was obviously Edward Norton from the start. <laughs> <laughs> I could see that. And Brian Tyree Henry, of course, was Seth Green. Of course, of course. I'd say the worst of the group was Selma Hayek, because the whole time it's just kind of, why are you here? It, it never really made sense. I don't think but, any of it made sense, and that's why, I mean, I, it almost is a movie I need to watch again, but it's also like 160 minutes long. I don't really want to, or care enough to. Oh, I, I understood it. It made sense to me. All right. Anyways, three stars from me, one and a half from Todd. Is, Zach is, needs to see it to see what, the, where is, we're going to be. Is this the strangest follow-up movie to a Best Director winner? It's got to be up there, right? I mean, in terms of genre shifting, I don't think there's ever ever been anything more dramatic. To a best director winner, not a best, best yeah. picture. Not not no, not best picture. I'm best director winner. Like, I can't yeah, even probably. really think of anything. Well, just because it's so it's so like anti everything that she does, and and she makes it very grounded, and it, but. It's so it was so like her whole thing was minimalism in everything that she did. And then she goes and makes a Marvel movie. The special Maybe, effects that's, are not good though. That's the thing. What? The special effects aren't good. I mean it's it's like I, I wanted more intimacy in the movie. See, and I thought there was there was enough of it. I don't know. All right. Well that is uh that's Eternals. If you haven't seen it yet, I will say this was like the first time since pre-pandemic I was in a full screening of anything. And this at like I bought my tickets like three hours ahead of time because all that was left were the front two rows for my my 945 screening on Friday night. So uh, so I, I made sure I had I had the ticket I wanted. And yeah, I, which is great. I'm glad people are going out to see see this one i don't know why this one's getting more more play than shang chi did because shang chi is definitely more of your traditional by the black widow was most full of any of them that i saw see this is this is the most full i've i've seen in a long time all right so that's eternals now we're moving on to the other big movie that came out, which was nowhere near the box office movie, but definitely a movie in terms of Oscar buzz that came out this weekend. And that is Spencer from Pablo Lorraine, uh, starring Kristen Stewart, who is one of the front runners for uh, Best Actress right now. Is she here yet? Not yet, ma'am, no. Then she's late. She is late. Your Royal Highness. Mommy. <laughs> family are all gathered in the drawing room. They are waiting. Three days. 
serious about you. So stand very still and smile a lot. They know everything. They don't. Mummy, what happened to make you so sad? Well, here, in this house, there is no future. Past and the present are the same thing. Diana, they can't change. You have to change. You have to be able to do things you hate. You hate? There has to be two of you. There's the real one <laughs> and the one they take pictures of. Diana, for the good of the country. already that's up on um uh, that's up on our um uh, our website our blog um i i will say i gotta check it right now i, I and I that's posted, why i think you you should start terry i should start again yes you wrote the review i know i wrote the review okay so i i will say i posted my review on twitter and i have to i have to share this because uh my post on twitter now has 88 likes, 23 retweets, and one of those likes and retweets is the official Spencer movie Twitter page. Wow. So, um, yeah, apparently I wrote a decent review uh, for this movie. Are you, are we going to, is Almost Sideways going to be on the, on the posters like that one movie? That would be cool. That would be bleed, cool. Bleed for this? Bleed for this, yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. that. That'd be awesome. I will say I, I'm a, Next best picture is one is one uh, podcast I listen to a lot. Magnaglia was a guest on uh, Adam's Daily Notes at one point. Uh, kind of a small time, you know, podcast working their way up. Anyways, they they have a quote in the trailer for Fleet, uh, which I saw at, before watching Spencer. So I think that's pretty cool. Anyways, sure, I'll review this one too, and then Zach can react to it. Uh, so Spencer. Brought to us by uh, Pablo Lorraine, uh, starring Kristen Stewart, like I said. Um, it is the second in what he has come out and said is going to be a trilogy of uh, kind of tragic biopics surrounding females of the last century. And his, his first one was Jackie five years ago, starring Natalie Portman, which I actually haven't seen yet. Uh, it's one I missed when it came out. And now we have Spencer. And this is uh, talking about uh, Princess Diana. And it looks at a weekend or a three-day Christmas event at the uh, Sandringham Estate in Norfolk, England, um, where they go to every Christmas, the royal family does, to celebrate the holidays together. Um, Diana is kind of already in this tortured state of dealing with expectations of what she is supposed to be as being a member of the royal family while trying to be her own person. Uh, she is fighting against uh, all those expectations while also fighting against some uh, kind of hysteria, almost on a mental break 
at times and also uh, being driven into this eating disorder uh, for all the expectations being heaped on top of her. Uh, Timothy Spall plays Major Alistair Gregory, who is hired by the by the royal family to handle security. But really, his job is to keep Diana in line during Christmas. That That's really his job. And it, it's making her, trying to get her to fit into the box that the royal family needs her to fit into. Um, Kristen Stewart is the perfect choice to play this part of Diana. Um, there have been other actresses who've, who've played Diana, and I don't know if she fits into every single one, but she fits into this phase in Diana's life perfectly because it's kind of Kristen Stewart in a, in a way it, fighting against what you're, what the expectations of what you are to be when you make of life for Kristen Stewart, when you make the twilight saga, she's been trying to live up to or live down to that her entire career. And uh, she's trying to be her own person at the same time. And so I feel like this was a very personal role for her. Her role is amazing. Her performance is outstanding. I said in my review that I put it up there with like Philip Seymour Hoffman and Capote, Daniel Day-Lewis and Lincoln, and how immersive and just transcendent her performance is where you start to lose track of what's the real person, what's not the real person, what's fact, what's fiction, because she's so good in at portraying this uh this character at the same time you also have pablo lorraine behind it and he's making this very beautiful movie um cinematography on this almost reminds me of like uh of like the favorite and how that that kind of cinematography played um you have some really good uh kind of supporting performances surrounding kristen stewart from sean harris as the uh, head chef uh, and also you have Sally Hawkins playing her, her dresser. Um, anyways, this is a movie that you just kind of are hypnotized by. Another thing I compared it to in my review is I compared it to the Gus Van Sant death trilogy uh, in that it just feels so subtle and you learn everything you need to know about these characters through not much happening. And it's almost hypnotic in the way it does it. And I think the closest uh, relative to this is End of Days, which was his Kurt Cobain kind of biopic that he made in last at days. that time. Last Days. Ah, yes, Last Days. I meant Last Days. Um, and uh, but where that was so overindulgent and out of control, this is so much more accessible and understandable. And you've got this amazing performance at the heart of it. I was going to give it three and a half stars. And as I can, as I was writing my review and thinking about it, I really couldn't think of anything bad to say about it. And so it, it quickly moved up to being a four star movie for me. So that's, uh, that's where I'm at with Spencer. Zach, where are you at with Spencer? Yeah. So uh, I was very intrigued by your review. I must say, uh, you know, I'm glad I chose Spencer over Eternals. Um, not that I could really get to Eternals, but this movie is uh, really interesting. I, I was a little skeptical at first because I have seen um, Jackie, which I liked, but I didn't think broke any new ground with uh, Jackie Onassis. It also didn't really break any ground in terms of the filmmaking style. Uh, Pablo Lorraine is a really interesting director, um, but I almost felt like uh, there, there was too much conventionality in Jackie. This movie is almost like the complete opposite of that. This movie is very experimental. It's very abstract at times. It's very much 
um, subjective in a way. I'm going to really try to avoid spoilers here because of, we, Todd's going to see it. I don't want to spoil anything for him about it. But there are things in this movie that I was not expecting stylistically. And I really applaud the director for having the ambition and audacity to do really what he did. Um, I also feel like this movie is sort of... Um, it's an interesting contrast to The Crown. I feel like when they were devising this movie, they had to be thinking about how many people will have seen The Crown by this point. And so they wanted to go for something that was quite a bit different in terms of the style style and the feel. And I think they, they were successful in that. Um, I don't think this movie is perfect, though. And I wouldn't give it four stars. I think that there's a, there's a few issues that I have with it, which is... Um, Yes, it's it it's ambitious. It's stylistically ambitious, but it's also derivative. I feel like uh, this movie wants to be a Terrence Malick movie. I mean, there are shots in here that are right out of Terrence Malick movies, like To the Wonder or uh, Tree of Life. And I also That's feel a like a good comparison with the style. Uh, yeah, just the the palette of the cinematography. That's I mean, there's good, yeah. literally scenes where a character dances on the beach, just like in every Terrence Malick movie. I mean, and there's stuff with curtains here too, just like in every Terrence Malick movie. And then there's also, but there's also a little bit of like, it's kind of interesting. This comes off the heels of last night in Soho. Um, there's a little bit of that vibe as well in this movie in terms of kind of paranoia, hallucinations a little bit that I felt like recalled Roman Polanski and Louis Bunuel in the sixties and seventies a little bit. Um, so, you know, it's fine for the director to kind of channel that, uh, but it's not necessarily the most original take on it. Um, I thought, uh, I'm surprised you didn't mention the music by, uh, by, uh, Johnny Greenwood. Johnny Greenwood. Yeah. Yeah. Friend of Paul Thomas Anderson, Radiohead, uh, the music, it is hard to watch this movie, not focus on the music because it is so I, like you could probably play this movie with a very traditional, you know, BBC, you know, modern classics, you know, London Philharmonic score. It would be one way. But with this score, the movie feels totally different and and totally uh, unique. Maybe that's where you were kind of coming in with the favorite, because I could see that a little bit because the favorite also kind of uses some weird music as well. Um, I guess my issue with the movie is that. I feel like this. So after I watched this movie, I went on a little bit of a YouTube deep dive with Princess Diana and I watched a little bit of her interview with Martin Bashir and some of the stuff that you can see on YouTube. And I think it's pretty clear that this the, these filmmakers, the writer, uh, very much were trying to base Diana's uh, mental instability, her bulimia, her, uh, you know, uh, a few feuding with the royal crown based on those interviews on YouTube. Um, and. I did a little bit of other research. I mean, the Sally Hawkins character in this movie is really interesting, plays a pivotal role in Diana's life. It's unclear whether she's based on fact or not. It's unclear how much of this movie is historical fact or it's speculative. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to me, that's a little bit troubling in the sense that we we're, it's, they're trying to generate sympathy for Diana. But if you're doing it through these kind of artificial, you know, unfair ways of doing it, I, I, I feel like that's cheating a little bit. I also feel like Diana, I mean, I, I get that this movie's not trying to be a three-hour biopic of this person's entire life, but I feel like you, you come out of this movie thinking that Diana was someone who was really tortured, mentally unstable, in a really crappy situation, but I feel like there was a lot more to Princess Diana. There's a line, uh, there's kind of a throwaway line in this movie about her work with human rights groups in terms of line, uh, land, landmines um, and her work a little uh, with, with AIDS victims. And I, I feel like the humanitarian side of Princess Di, I mean, that, that wasn't going to be the main focus of this movie, but I just feel like she's a such a more complex character. And for the movie to just sort of completely ignore that side of her, the way that she used her fame, that she uh, used her name recognition to help uh, human rights causes is, is a little bit of a lot, like it's a, bit of, a little bit of a loss in the movie. I know that's not the point of the movie. I know Pablo Lorraine would say, you know, that's not really the focus. 
I thought this movie also ended kind of abruptly. I wanted to see kind of the next chapter. This movie was not too long. I could have actually watched more of it. It was really kind of fascinating. And it feels like the movie's moving on to something interesting before it kind of just sort of stops, which is uh, which is unfortunate. I'm giving it three stars because I think the director is ambitious and I think Kristen Stewart is great and is deserving of an Oscar nomination. But I also kind of wish the movie had played a little bit more fairly with historical accuracy, had been a little less stylistically derivative, and maybe a little bit more balanced in terms of um, the, the whole the, the, the whole personality and persona of Princess Diana. Well, I mean, it tells you right off the bat that it's going to kind of play fast and loose with some of the facts, because it says, the first thing you see is it says a fable based on a true tragedy. So you know that what, what they're doing with it is coming up with their version of what could have happened at that time. Um, and so, so there is that, and you, you understand that going into it, but I think, I, I, I think what you get out of it, I'm okay with it just being this little slice of, of, uh, of life. And uh, this little snapshot moment of, of something that happened. I'm, I'm okay with it, not going into, into everything. And why didn't it focus on that that much? Because it kind of seemed like the royal family didn't care about her humanitarian work. They wanted her to be, you know, what a member of the royal family is supposed to be. And she wanted to be her own person. And I, it was that constant struggle that's really the focus of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, that's a valid point. I just feel like a lot of audiences under the age of 30 are going to go into this movie either having watched The Crown or with very little knowledge of Princess Diana. And, and I haven't away. watched The Crown. Yeah, I haven't, uh, I haven't a, either, to yeah. be fair. But I think they're going to come away from this movie with a kind of limited perspective on the on the importance of who she was and and why she was such a frankly noble person because she used her fame for really good causes. Um, especially, and, and the, the movie does kind of point to that 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 after the events of this movie, which I think take place in 1991, she found more of her voice and more of her sort of autonomy. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I, I agree. I mean, that I, th I think the style, the, the, the decision to have it based in three days sort of has its limits, by the way, what is boxing day? Does anyone know what, what, what that is? Why it's, is that celebrated in, in England? I, I was wondering that the yeah, whole time. I, it, I've, I know it's a big thing there. I know it pops up on our calendars here, but I don't know what it actually is. Um, I think this would be a great companion piece to the queen. I think if you watch the queen, mm. You should watch this movie too. And I actually think this movie, I give more props to this movie because the queen is a very straightforward, also truncated look at a few weeks in, you know, the, in Queen Elizabeth's life. But this movie, I like, I like that it's stylistically different. I just wish that it hadn't been Terrence Malick uh, or, or so clearly derivative of Terrence Malick. Okay. So I haven't seen the movie, obviously, but the way you guys have been describing it, this sounds like Steve Jobs, the Danny Boyle movie. Is that mm -hmm. the way you think this is going to be? like looked at at the oscars it maybe maybe gets uh, the acting nomination but it, it's ignored otherwise because it's too stylistically ambitious and not something super straightforward like the oscars love very much so i think I that's, see that's that. a great comparison i can see that or, i, I, I mean, never thought spencer was actually a best picture contender but like i still see it constantly in predictions i'm like i mean and i never I mean, Kristen Stewart also has had tons of really ambitious moves that she deserved Oscar nominations for, like Personal Shopper and Welcome to the Rileys and whatnot. But these are not Oscar movies, and this doesn't really sound like it either. Yeah, and if we're going off the Todd theory that to be a Best Actress winner, particularly Best Actress, but maybe also Best Actor, you have to have an Oscar scene, which Carrie Mulligan apparently didn't have last year. I can't think of any moment in this movie where, where Kristen Stewart has an Oscar scene. 
the the closest might be when she's talking to her uh, William and and Harry that one yes. night. That would maybe yeah. be the closest. But even that's sort of an unconventional scene. It's not like a traditional Oscar scene. That's a good point. I, I could see. I mean, even though she's great in it. it, it could sneak into a Best Picture lineup. I mean, I I think we're we're st- we talked a couple weeks ago. We're still pretty unclear of what that how that Best Picture lineup is going to play out. Um, at the same time, you're, you're saying Steve Jobs. I think Jackie is a pretty good comparison of how it could turn out at the Oscars. I mean, Jackie got what a Best Actress nomination and costumes, I think. Yeah. And this could be right there with that. And again, Pablo Lorraine. So maybe his his movies might not be accessible to the Academy, but and I think it's also saying something that we're dealing with a we're dealing with a, a group of people like like uh, Zach said, we might end up with the, the younger viewers don't necessarily get a full picture because you have a lot of people who were not alive when <laughs> Princess Diana was. So you're, you're getting a lot of people who don't really understand the impact she had and uh, and the type of the type of person she was when she was around. I mean, I was 12 when she died, I think. So, it, I mean, it was, it, it's been a while. It's been a while. So I think that, that plays a part into it too, that we won't know more the legend of Princess Di than, than her actually now. So. I feel like the last scene in this movie was a real thing. I think I do remember reading about that. I could see that. I could see that. For sure. All right. Well, that is uh, that is Spencer. That at least we're both giving thumbs up to. So, Todd, you need to see Spencer now to see if we are going to be thrice approved on that one. Now, moving on to uh, our power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. And uh, and this is kind of a, a a Todd Todd's featured on the rest of the on the rest of this because he got to pick power rankings, he got to pick what we got we we had to watch for trivia. He's hosting trivia, so uh, and I feel like this is a very Todd power rankings list. Oh, too. absolutely! This is this is something no one else <laughs> would come up with, and it's impossible to like research. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So we are doing the best. English language films by foreign speaking directors. And originally that this this had started circulating in my mind because I reviewed this awesome Nicolas Cage movie called Prisoners of the Ghost Land, which was directed by Sion Sono, who directed Suicide Club. And that 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 got me thinking of like, okay, so there's these directors that spend their entire career in their native country, in their native tongue making movies and they make an american movie what does that look like and i and then we did dune which obviously is another one like denny villeneuve obviously started making french movies and then spencer and i was like okay it's the perfect thing to to actually go with and yeah the the only qualification i had was that the the director actually had to have one movie that was made in their native tongue in their native country before making the american movie so like Chloe Zhao wouldn't count, even though she was born in China. She like she never made she a movie made that a wasn't Chinese English. Film. Yeah. Okay. Oh man, I'm sitting here and I keep on thinking of ones that I forgot about to put in here. Ah. Okay. 
I'm I'm changing my list. It's not too late. <laughs> it's not too late to change my list. All right. Well, I'm not starting this time. So, uh, Todd, you're starting on this one. It's your list. What's your number five? All right. Well, I'm not I'm not including my top 100 movies again because I mean that'd be too yeah, easy. Yeah, that's the easy way out for me too. I think. So my number name. five is a movie that I don't think we really ever talk about on this podcast, but I I really liked it. And I don't know anyone that really didn't like it, and that's Dallas Buyers Club. Directed by Jean-Marc uh, Vallée. And the way I was looking at my list was like, uh, directors that understand like, like kind of America that weren't born here. And this is a movie that totally gets this very American story uh, from a perspective that we wouldn't get because of somebody who wasn't here when it happened. And I, I, I think it's, it's really a, a really entertaining movie, a really likable movie. Matthew McConaughey and Jared Leto give two of the best performances of the last 10 years. And it's a, I mean, it's a, it's an important story. And I, and somehow this movie got a best picture nomination, which I, I think is kind of awesome because it, it's really cool. Dallas Buyers Club. One I didn't think of. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. I would have never thought of that. All right. So does anybody not like that movie? I wasn't I a huge fan of it. I, I, but, I feel but would like you say it was it wasn't good. I, mean, I, I think everybody liked the movie in some capacity. I mean, I think we look back on it now as kind of problematic. I don't know if that movie. I mean, it, I don't know if it would have been made the same way even eight years later. I mean, I feel like you know, it's not that the main cast is not you know are are, are straight cis uh, white actors and. I don't know. I, I feel like the it would have been it would be different today. Does that mean it's a bad movie? No, but I just remember being sort of Oscar Beatty and I don't know, not like the most sort authentic. Of. Okay. Yeah, I, I've I've it's one that I feel like from from how I've heard other people talk about it hasn't aged well. I haven't watched it, gone back and watched it in a while, but that's kind of the the um the vibe you get. All right, Zach, number five. Okay, my number five is uh, a I so I tried to go with one per decade because I thought that's what we were doing. Come on, guys, thanks for letting me know. Jeez, uh, but and ironically enough, I forgot about Todd's requirement that they had to direct a movie in their own uh, native tongue or something other than English. So that messes me up there. So I'm I'm going to try to stick to the rules, but I may need to rearrange my order a little bit. I'm going to start in the '90s because I know this person directed. Uh, movies in their native language which i believe is czech i want to say or polish i can't remember the director is agnieszka holland who made europa europa and some really cool uh european movies in the 70s and 80s and the american movie is the secret garden uh and it is it was made in 1993 i think it's the best adaptation of the secret garden and i think it's probably one of the two or three best kids films ever made i remember watching it as a kid um, and it tells the story. It's based on the classic uh, novel about a, a little girl who uh, is born in India, but uh, is sent to live in England in this huge, strange, imposing house. And she befriends the boy who works at the house. And she also befriends the bedridden boy who's kind of locked in his bedroom and is sort of agoraphobic and sort of an asshole. And uh, they discover a secret garden. And uh, I will contend that I think this is maybe like like gun to my head. We're talking the most beautiful movies ever made in terms of the pure cinematography, like beautiful movies to look at. The Secret Garden ranks up there with any Terrence Malick movie. Um, I haven't seen it in a while. 
Agneska Holland is a really interesting director. I'm a big fan of her films, Europa, Europa, and uh, Olivier, Olivier, which is also about kids and a kidnapping. Um, but really, this is the one that sticks out. I don't know what she's really been doing much lately. It looks like she's been she's directed a couple episodes of House of Cards, so she does work uh, in English frequently. But um, this is a really awesome movie. Back in an era in the early '90s, when um, serious directors like Holland and and Alfonso Cuarón and a few others were making kids movies, but they were and John Sayles too with The Secret of Rowan Inish. They were making kids movies, but for whole families, and they weren't dumbing it down with stupid lame jokes and LeBron James and Bugs Bunny. That was not happening in the mid '90s. They were actually making really high quality movies and the secret garden is one of the very best movies uh for kids but also for adults and it makes me really glad to be a 90s kid all right on to me now i think i've got my list nailed down so let's go with it now number five actually has not changed since since i uh i was looking at this so number five on my list is one of the few movies that three of us have all seen together uh it is written and directed by the one and only German man, Werner Herzog. It is Rescue Dawn. Yes. Uh, yes. I think this is one of the... I thought that might have been Merlot. <laughs> this is one of the... Well, he, yeah. This is one of the best, like, forgotten movies of the 2000s. Because it it is just amazing where you have... You've got Christian Bale playing Dieter Dangler, this uh, POW in Vietnam, um, based on a real story. It, it is such an immersive experience and it's so beautifully done by Herzog. Uh, Steve Zahn gives possibly his best performance of all time. Uh, it, it's just a, it's just a good movie. And I don't know why nobody talks about how good this movie was. It was a great movie. Like Bale and Zahn deserved Oscar recognition that year and nothing came of this. Um, it, it was amazing. Here. Yeah, it was amazing. So, uh, it, yeah, it made my list. Number five. Can you tell the story on. of how we all saw it together? The list, the, all the three listeners need to hear it. Well, okay, so you were visiting and um, the the uh, Puget Sound what, area. One of the few movies we've ever actually sat in a theater, the three of us together and watched. I would say there's maybe five movies all time. And maybe wasn't it more. wasn't it a double feature or was it two different nights? I think it was two different nights. Okay. Where the, we saw we yeah. saw the Simpsons movie, the Simpsons movie, and, and then... Rescue Dawn, and this was the afterthought. I think we were more excited yeah. about the Simpsons movie. Yep. I think we were just bored the next day, and we're like, okay, there's nothing to do. Let's go see this Christian Bale movie. I, I think you guys were excited. It was Herzog, but I think I, I think don't even to this remember day, getting it's still the only Herzog movie I've seen. I don't even remember getting great reviews necessarily, and I knew it was a remake of uh, uh, what's what is it a Little remake Peter. of Little Dieter Little Dieter Needs to Fly, yeah. Which, which is, is a, a really cool movie, right? Yeah. I loved it. I mean, I thought it was extraordinary. Christian Bale biting the head off a snake. I mean, who doesn't want to see that shit? <laughs> I'm looking here. It's got 7.3 on uh, IMDb, 104,000 votes. But everyone, it's just a forgotten movie. Listen, if this why. movie had come out in the Twitter era, we would have talked it up like you did with uh, Spencer, and it would have been retweeted by 88 people and it we would have gotten the word out i think also, so i seem to remember we were the only ones in the theater at that movie too like it, it was abandoned you might you might be right we drove all the way to auburn too like did we no no yeah, that was both that those was movies were in auburn no that was commons i don't know where that is no the commons wasn't open back then 2007 there's no way I thought that was, I... we, both of those movies were in auburn 
Okay. But apparently, uh, Starplex didn't have them or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, all right. I thought I thought it was I thought it was at uh at the mall. All right. Anyways, didn't open until two thousand nine, maybe. Okay. Anyways, it was an awesome movie. We saw it together. It's on my list. Agreed. Yeah. Pod number four. My number four it comes from the nineties. I, I didn't do one per decade because that wasn't something we decided on but it is uh leon the professional oh by Luke Bastone, which is obviously i mean i think it's one of the coolest action movies of the 90s and it it's probably the one movie on my list that is probably could have just been in like another language because jean renault is not great at speaking english and it easily I mean, it seems more like a like an italian movie than an actual american movie but it probably wouldn't be made the same way today. I mean, the character dynamics are really uh, complicated, but Natalie Portman and John Renault are amazing in the movie, as is Gary Oldman as the uh, like pill-popping cop. It, it, it's a classic movie, and um, a movie that I would have never come across other than the fact that it's always on like the top 50 of IMDb, which is crazy because the movie is completely ignored by every award uh, in 1994. I, I love the movie. Leon the Professional... Yeah, I don't know how I forgot about Luke Basson. That's a missed opportunity there. Oh, yeah. Adam's That's list a being one. adjusted as we speak in Terry's, in Terry's computer. I'm, I'm, le- I'm leaving his alone. I'm leaving his alone. I like my list for him. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. That that Thank you. Potent- had potential of being a top 100 um, submission for me. Same. It's just, it's just so good, and it's not the only Luc Besson movie I've liked. I mean, he's made, he makes some weird movies, but they're they are usually pretty good. So, all right, Zach, number four. All right, my number four is uh, also sort of a movie that gets overlooked. It's my selection from the two thousands, and it's a movie I remember seeing in a theater and really responding well to. I haven't seen it in a while. I would wonder how it holds up today. The film is House of Sand and Fog directed by a Ukrainian director named Vadim Perlman, who I've not seen any other films by. Apparently, he made The Life Before Her Eyes, which I remember Todd liking. Um, but oh. the movie is based on a novel by Andre Dubuz III, who I believe is the son of Andre Dubuz of In the Bedroom fame. And actually, there is there's some similarities between the two movies. And it stars friend of the podcast, Jennifer Connelly. Hey, you know what? We should deep dive it because it's a Jennifer Connelly movie. Uh, but she plays a uh, alcoholic uh, sort of miscreant named Kathy, which is kind of out of, you know, it's a little bit out of uh, persona for uh, uh, Jennifer Connelly. Anyway, she's a bit of a loose cannon. I agree. I don't think she's ever played a Kathy before. That will, yes, exactly. (laughs) That's funny. Uh, I didn't make that connection, actually. Uh, But anyway, at the beginning of this movie, she's sort of down and out, and she has lost her beloved house on the beach, I believe. And uh, the people who have moved in are um, Iranian uh, immigrants. Uh, The the patriarch of the household is this very kind of masculine, uh, almost arrogant uh, guy who's like an Iranian general, and he's played by uh, Ben Kingsley. And his wife is played by um, Shuru Agdashlu, Shore Agdashlu, who actually got an Academy Award nomination. Actually, Ben Kingsley did, too. And uh, it, it's about the conflict between white people and immigrants, rich and poor. In the middle of it is this house uh, that uh, ownership is disputed over. You've got this Ron Eldred character, this police officer who kind of shacks up with uh, Jennifer Connelly. 
And uh, it's a movie very much about sides, which side you take. Well, there's some there, you know, you, you can understand uh, Jennifer Connelly's side a little bit, but you can also understand uh, the Iranian immigrants uh, side as well. I wonder how that dynamic would play, you know, 17, 18 years after this movie was released. But I remember really liking it so much so that I read the book afterwards and really enjoyed the book. I remember uh, Vadim Perlman, uh, I remember somewhere he said that he picked up the book randomly at an airport and read it, which is an awesome way to get introduced to a story. But uh, anyway, really strong movie, some Oscar nominations, but kind of getting lost a little bit along the way. Uh, ben Kingsley is just a force of nature in this movie. He's amazing. And uh, Jennifer Connelly is great, too, as yet another Kathy. Check it out if you haven't seen it. Um, and I'd like to see more stuff by <clears throat> Dean Perlman. It was his debut as well. Very nice. Very nice. I have not seen House of Sand and Fog. Nice. You've seen it, right, Todd? Yeah, I, I remember thinking Connelly was the best part of the movie, and she was the one that didn't get nominated, which kind of sucks. But yeah, yeah, it, it is a good movie. I, I, would, I didn't even consider that. Like, I, I feel like we're going to say that a lot during this power rankings. I know. I like it. I like yeah. it because I, I would have never thought of Leon the Professional either. Well, see, I was going with like directors I knew and uh, like and going from there. But if you're going by movies, you knew. And then. Seeing yes, the that's exactly what I did. I thought of the movie first and then the director. I thought I thought directors and and then tried to find a movie from that director. So. And then, and yeah. But wouldn't you have to have known that they made American movies, though? Like, that was the hard part. Right, it was. It we was. We kind of know, like, Pablo Lorraine is obviously not American. Like, you know that... Yeah. I mean, I mean, they could just go from there. Did he make a movie in France or something? Yeah, of course. <clears throat> All right. So I'm next with my number four. I'm looking at my list. I actually also picked five different countries for, on my list, which is cool. And none of them are like some of the, like, I don't have a French director on my list. I don't have a Japanese director on my list, which are two of the, the like, bigger film industry um, hotspots. Anyways, my number four is uh, a film that was directed by a Brazilian director named Fernando Mireas. And uh, this is The Two Popes is my number four. Um Really, like one of the more surprising movies of the last couple years. This came out in 2019 and uh, stars Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price as uh, as Pope Benedict and Pope Francis and their conversations over several days as Benedict steps down and Francis becomes Pope. Uh, this was one of the uh, like I said, it was it was such a surprise. And these two actors gave such powerful performances in this. Um, and I think it was it was Anthony Hopkins kind of rode the momentum train of getting nominated for this into winning for the father, which unfortunately does not qualify because Florian Zeller has not directed a French film. Um, but anyways, uh, The Two Popes is is a really cool movie. And it was one of the more surprising movies of that year. And uh, and Fernando Myreis is a great director, and it's my favorite of his English language films. So, number four. What other English language films has he made besides The Constant Gardener? Blindness. Blindness. Yeah, oh. Blindness was horrible. Um, Constant Gardener was okay, but I don't remember really much yeah, about it. I don't remember it. much of it either. But yeah, the problem with that is that 
like I like the two popes as well, but it's nowhere close to City of God. City of God is an all-time top fifty movie for me. Very so true. As good as the as the two popes was and the concert gardener, it's just it just pales in comparison. So that was sort of a struggle with this list too. Is sometimes the foreign foreign language director had made a better movie in their home language than the English movie they directed. Well, that's going to be most of the times you would think, right? Uh, not not necessarily. Does that mean the tourist is not making your list? I really wanted to put it on. <laughs> Believe it or not, I've never seen The Tourist. Neither I have I. Stayed away from it. Other than directors that made like maybe one movie in their own country and then came to America, I think most of them like made a better movie in their own country. But we'll see. All right, Todd, number three. My number three is Sicario, which we've mentioned a few times. Like it's a great movie. Denny Villeneuve, you know about the um, FBI agent who's sort of uh, forced to uh, take part in the war on drugs at the border of Mexico and the United States. Emily Blunt is amazing in this. I will never understand the lack of Oscar attention for this movie. Like, I think this deserved a screenplay nomination, a Best Actress nomination. Benicio Del Toro gives one of his, like, three best performances in this. It, I mean, and this is this really, like, through Denny Villeneuve into the spotlight of being like, okay, th- this guy is a really interesting director we have to pay attention to. And he's, I mean, he's made, he's gotten everything he wanted since this movie. And this is the one that actually gave him the opportunity because it, it is amazing. And I, I've seen Sicario several times. It's a great movie. I was wondering if anyone was going to consider Denny Villeneuve as a, as a controversial choice for this list. Because he has made French films and he has he's made French English Canadian films. Film. Yeah, he's French Canadian, but I mean, yes, he's yes, but I don't know. I don't know. It's it's one of those like I said, foreign speaking director. That was how I worded it, right? I I think so. I think so. I Anyways. tried to stay away from directors who, yes, maybe they were born outside the United States and grew up with a different language, but are primarily making English language movies like Denny Villeneuve. Like, well, he he made he made movies before. Like, I mean, not on many. D. You got to see on I mean, Sunday. I mean, mostly he's working in in the English language. So I felt like the spirit of this list was more directors who were outside their their native language. Like, yeah, I, as I sort totally. of an aberration a little bit. Yeah, but I mean, but like a lot of those, like 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 I had mentioned back when I reviewed *Prisoners of Ghostland*, like it's like Yimou Zhang made like what *The Flowers of War* or something like that. I mean, like these are terrible movies. Like like m- most of them make as their own, or like uh, I remember it was uh, what was it? Michael Phillips was always say Zabriskie Point was Antonioni's American movie, and it's a yeah. terrible movie. But see, the thing is, like Todd, if if we did it that way, like wouldn't you put? you know, Mike Nichols on this list. I mean, and he's a director. Well, he didn't, I don't know if he directed any, I guess, non-English movies, but like. Right. Oh, and, then, but, and that's why I made that qualification because you can't just be somebody who's only worked in America. I guess that's fair. All right. Zach, number three. Okay. My number three film is uh, one of my favorite movies of the 2010s. It's my 2010 selection from 2017. I don't think either of you have seen it. It currently has 538 votes on IMDb and you two are not one of them. Uh, it is a movie called Life and Nothing More. The director is Antonio Mendez Esparza, who is Spanish, uh, but the movie takes place in the United States. It is about uh, a young African-American teenager named Andrew and uh, the relationship between him and his mother, Regina, who's played by Regina Williams. Um, and it is a one of the best mother-son movies ever made. I think it's a movie about uh, a kid who is being 
I don't know, um, tempted into a life of delinquency and crime, um, but uh, resists it. He also has a dysfunctional relationship with his mother's new boyfriend. It's a slice of life movie. It isn't very theatrical. It doesn't have kind of over the top spectacularness to it. The reason I'd heard about this movie is from the Grusin and Leach podcast, and Grusin had put it as one of his top movies of 2017. I think it gets overshadowed a little bit by Moonlight because it has uh, very similar themes um, and uh, kind of similar look at the, the dynamics of an African American family. Uh, but um, I actually think this movie's better because it's a little bit more straightforward in its narrative storytelling. You get a little bit more of a cohesive, coherent look at, at two characters as they develop over time. Um, it is a movie also about systemic racism. You definitely see that in the movie, but it's also just a movie about a kid and his mom and their struggle to kind of survive um, amid, you know, this kind of tempestuous relationship. I was kind of reminded of the Apu trilogy, the middle movie, which really is about Apu and his mother. Um, really awesome movie. And it's sad that it doesn't get the kind of recognition that it deserves, but it is the definition of great indie filmmaking from the 2010s. Never really got a huge release, but really worth checking out. One of my favorite movies of the decade. Yeah, I never got to see that. That I, I know it's because it was nominated for Spirit Awards, and I still haven't watched it yet, unfortunately. Oh, Very man. much worth checking. Uh, I may need to assign it to you. Now, is that more more grievous than Terry not having seen a Billy Wilder film? I mean, that's ridiculous. I don't think so. <laughs> I, I'll have to look. I, I'm not 100% sure on that. We'll have to look at that, but it's possible. All right. I'm next with number three. And uh, I'll, I'll just put it, I'll put it this way. If my top 100 were in play, there'd be a different movie representing this director. However, I love this movie, and I don't think anybody else on this podcast really loves it the way I do. Uh, this is my Ang Lee submission, and I'm going with Life of Pi. I love this movie. It is... Um, it's this adventure thriller yet still kind of looking at kind of what makes you who you are and what do you believe in? It's a great, um, uh, it all kind of is based on this conversation that's happening between Rafe Spall and Irfan Khan, um, who it's a bummer. We don't get any more Irfan Khan performances, um, and about, um, his journey, uh, to America in, uh, in a boat with a tiger and how he survived uh, the seas. It, it's a beautiful movie. It's really, it's like this movie started Ang Lee on his journey of how, what can I do with visuals and all this stuff. And he's kind of gone overboard a little bit with that since, but uh, this movie is just gorgeous to look at. It's a really fun story. Um, and it's one of those stories that, you can show to anyone. I mean, it's a PG rated movie, but it definitely has, has heart and, and some brilliant, um, some brilliant work done in there. So life of pie, I'm going with it. I'm surprised you didn't go with Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. I, I really yeah, I never we saw that, that one. Direction. I never saw that one or, or Eric Bandit's Hulk. Never saw that one either. Actually. Yeah. You're, you're better off for it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good choice. So, I mean, yeah, Life of Pi is great. Good. The, I'm glad. The real, the real curiosity is over Brokeback Mountain. That That's actually legitimate. Brokeback Mountain is on my top 100. 
it would have so Brokeback Mountain would have been on my list if I was gonna put ones for my top 100. I've got three. I think I think only three movies on my top 100 that would have qualified, and so I'll mention those in my honorable mentions. Well, but speaking Brokeback of Brokeback Mountain, that is my number two. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and it's an it's another case of like a, a brilliant foreign director making a very specific American movie, and I mean, obviously, like. Ang Lee does with performances what no one else does, like Heath Ledger and Michelle Williams and Anne Hathaway and Jake Gyllenhaal are incredible in the movie. And it, it just has this like scope of somebody who has uh, of something really big in mind, but it makes it this like really low scale performance piece and it, it's beautiful. And I, I mean, I think this would be a really interesting movie if we were to have deep dive that last year. Like maybe we'll do that in five years or something or four years, but I mean, Broken Mountain is an amazing movie, and I think it gets better with age. Like the more I watch it, the more I think that it's it's not as like as like uh, slow and plotting as I originally thought it was. I mean, it's amazing either way, but it's a fantastic movie. Obviously, I agree. Very much so. We're it's thrice approved, believe it or not. It is. It is. I think I'm the only one that had it in my top 100, though. Yeah, it was in my. It would be in my next hundred, easily in my next hundred. All right, Zach, number two. Okay, my number two movie is maybe my favorite silent movie of all time. It is a movie that was in my top one hundred. It is the first Best Picture winner, although it was the award for artistic achievement or something like that. But we call it the first Best Picture winner, and that is Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, directed by F. W. Murnau, the great German expressionist uh, director. Um, Sunrise is uh, a silent movie, but I'm calling it a movie in English because uh, the, 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 the few words that are in it are, are English, and uh, it was actually not a silent movie. It was one of the first, it's hard to call it a talkie, but it did have sound effects and it had a score with it um, that was actually on the you know film strip itself. It wasn't like played with a live orchestra or anything, but it was... Uh, a amazing movie uh, that starred Janet Gaynor and George O'Brien. Janet Gaynor won an Oscar for it too, I believe. And uh, the, the lead characters in it, they have no names, kind of like the characters in Once. Uh, they're the man and the wife. And at the beginning of the movie, the wife is upset at the man because he is two-timing her with some floozy who looks like she's out of a 20s vaudeville act with the kind of bopped hairdo. Um, but uh, quickly, the, the, the man realizes the error of his ways, tries to win his wife back, and, uh, you know, it leads to, I think, the greatest sequence in all of silent film, which is when they go to the city and they're on that subway or, or trolley. And it doesn't look like any sort of American city. It's very clear that this movie, uh, F.W. Murnau, was not like trying to go for an accurate representation of what an American city looks like. It looks much more like a German city. It looks like something out of Metropolis. Uh, but anyway, the movie is uh, beautiful to look at. Some of the most amazing trick photography, optical photography, uh, it, it, prior to Citizen Kane, I guess. And uh, it has a really sweet love story that um, is just, you know, unpredictable, fun, very easy to understand and relate to. Okay, is it an English language film? I don't know, but it's a non-English language director working in an English language medium in Hollywood. So I'm counting it on the list. It's the best silent movie ever made and a movie that will change the way you think about silent movies if you haven't seen one. So yeah, ch check it out. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. It said, so... Because silent movies, all I got to do is change the, the title cards and you have a an English language movie. So Yeah, I stay away from that because, yeah, I mean, 
there's no language. <laughs> but okay. I mean, I'm not gonna argue with it. I mean, if we if we want to get this technical, then I would also go with City Lights, which was the movie he made after Sunrise, which is uh, actually has more title cards, so it's definitely no, definitely not English. City Lights. By the I'm way, I'm sorry, City Girl. My bad. Yeah, okay, uh, different <laughs> silent movie, same era though. But City Girl is also a wonderful uh, silent movie directed by Murnau, who died very early in his life, but was uh, probably the greatest silent film director. By the way, I looked it up. I've seen two Billy Wilder movies. And both have been in like the last two or three years. I've seen uh, I've seen Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity. Nice, good choices. Yeah, not his but, best picture winners. Nope there there are definitely some other ones I need to watch. Like, and I realize so like that. it hot. Yeah, the apartment. Apartment. Yeah. Okay, number two on my list uh, is one that I mentioned earlier, which may have been my oh hey that's one I should probably put on the list, and that is. Uh, the Greek director, Yorgos Lanthimos, and it is the favorite, um, which I was going to completely forget about. I forgot about Yorgos Lanthimos, and then I was like, oh, hey, he should probably be on here. Uh, this movie's in completely bonkers, and Lanthimos is just a bonkers director. Um, his uh, his break was his, um, his Greek language film that uh, was nominated for Best Foreign Film, Dogtooth, which is weird and insane. And that's just who he is. And then he had the lobster and killing of a sacred deer. But the favorite is where it finally kind of put it all together of his quirkiness and his just completely off the wall, but grounded in some sort of reality. And it worked really well. Um, Emma Stone and Rachel Weiss and Olivia Coleman are just magnificent in it. And yeah, it's a beautiful movie as, at the same time. So uh, it, it's a very well-directed movie. But yeah, Yorgos had to be on the list. Yeah, those foreign directors making uh, British, you know, royalty <laughs> pieces. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. All right, Todd, number one. All right, my number one. I mean, I didn't know where to go with this. So I went with, uh, because... You know, a certain TV show reappears tonight, uh, Dexter. Uh, I went with the, the, the next best uh, serial killer that I know, and that is The House That Jack Built, directed by Lars von Trier, <laughs> which is an amazing movie. It didn't quite crack my top 100, but uh, so that's why it's on here. But I think this is his best movie, and it, it's, I mean, it's really weird, and it is also like a, a very specific critique on America from somebody not born in America. Obviously, Von Trier hates the United States, and yet he makes all his movies here, kind of. I don't, it, it's, 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 a, it's crazy, and plus it has my boy, Matt Dillon. He's a, he's a serial killer, and he thinks of all of his, <laughs> um, his kills as works of art, and it, it's something else, and it, it is an experience that you have to have. Whether you want to have it or not, you will not regret having it once, it, once it's over. I love the movie. And I assign Zach that I know I know he doesn't care as much for it as I do, but Terry not has not watched it yet, but nope. He will. I did I did uh start season one, episode one of Dexter earlier this week. And now I just want to watch the whole thing again. But the new stuff starts tonight, so I don't think I'll get all the way through, but Yeah. I need to watch so it all again. 
it's very clear listening to that now why Todd chose Matt Dillon over any other actor because of his love and admiration for that movie. <laughs> I think it is ironic that Todd, you diss on Werner Herzog for his ego, but you give Von Trier, who is just as egotistical and self afflated He's never written himself into his own into a documentary, though. Oh, really? Todd, that that dialogue, you know, uh, over the top dialogue about you know the philosophical nature behind killing. That's not Von Trier just writing his own thoughts on uh, what he. It's not you know, his own voice. His own treatise. Into yes, a true is. story. <laughs> like. I mean, the thing is, I loved Von Trier for a while, and now he's, of course, canceled and for good reason. But since since, you know, um, Antichrist, he he ha he makes only one kind of movie, which is his mansplaining all about how murder is justifiable. And he's fascinated by odd digressions. And I mean, I gave Nymphomaniac both installments thumbs up. But I, he's just—he's become so predictable, which is so sad. I miss the days of dogma. This movie is not predictable. Well, I maybe he's predictable. The movie itself, especially the last twenty minutes, probably you're right. Not not entirely predictable, but I'm just kind of—I'm tired of his shtick. I want him to do a, a musical, but obviously not with Bjork. Didn't he do like some foreign musical like in the last like ten years? I don't know. He seems like an unpleasant person. He probably shouldn't make movies. But I would have gone with Breaking the Waves if if I had to if I had to pick. No, I'm thinking of it was 2006. Was that the last one he did? I have not seen a Lars von Trier movie. <clears throat> it was not a musical. Never mind. It was just not in English. Well, I mean, Terry, you need to see something. Breaking the waves probably be the best start, or or yeah. Dancer in the Dark, and then you can go. Oh well, no, I, I did I did see Dancer in the Dark. I saw Dancer. Okay, in the Dark. okay. The elephant in the room is 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 uh, Dogville. Dogville, yeah. But did not... I recently texted about? I would love to rewatch Dogville. It's a fascinating movie, difficult movie. Nobody should be subjected to see Manderley though. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I don't think any. I think you're the only person who saw it. All right, Zach, Very number one. Okay, so I my number one was going to be one of two movies from the 80s that are very high up on my top 100 list. I decided to not go with My Dinner with Andre because uh, that's a movie that is very much about its screenplay. And although Louis Mal was a great director, he was also very fluent in English and made several English language movies. I instead went with Vim Vender's classic from 1984, Paris, Texas. Uh, in part because it's a movie way more about America um, and kind of iconic landscapes of America than My Dinner with Andre, which is just, you know, stage bound and set in a restaurant, however great it is. But, you know, Vin Vendors as an outsider kind of looking in at, you know, the, the flashy neon lights and kind of empty streets in the middle of the night in Hollywood and in Houston and uh, it's just a, a remarkable achievement. I mean, Harry Dean Stanton, this is his best performance of, you know, the 6,000 movies that he was in. And, uh, you know, it's it, it's iconic. It's hard to think of another director uh, who could have made it um, with the same sort of sensibilities as Vim Vendors, um, who made a lot of great road movies in Germany. Alice in the Cities and Kings of the Road are two of the best German movies from that era. And, um, you know, uh, Paris, Texas is a road movie, but it's also a movie about a fractured family. It's also a movie about a guy who basically goes AWOL for four years, um, did some very horrible, destructive things to his family, 
tries to sort of redeem himself, but not totally. And I think it has also one of the great kid performances uh, all time. Um, and, uh, you know, Nastasia Kinski and him and, and Harry Dean Stanton at the end of the movie. I mean, it was, this is, this was Kurt's favorite movie, Kurt Cobain's favorite movie. He, you know, it's, uh, it's a classic for a reason, a cult classic for a reason. And, um, I, I'm glad that since Criterion, uh, took it up, I, uh, hopefully it's been exposed to more of an audience because for a while it was a serious underground movie, but it is a great movie. I haven't seen it. If it's good enough for Kurt Cobain. <laughs> No, it is really good. That that I mean, I assume that was going to be on Zach's list. Yeah. Yes. Don't come knocking. Not so good. In fact, most of Vim Vendors. I actually other, like that movie. It was. It tried to capture the spirit of Paris, Texas, and and failed pretty miserably. Actually, it's kind of funny. I think Vendors after Paris, Texas, is sort of overrated. Like, I didn't love Wings of Desire, and the end of Violence is just awful. Um, but uh, you know, that was the pinnacle of his career. All right, number one on my list is the one that everyone said, how did that not make your top 100? And uh, so it's number one here. And it's the first movie I thought of when I heard the heard the uh, the category after The Tourist, of course. And that is uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity. Mm. Uh, it, it had to be here. Uh, Sandra Bullock, George Clooney, Space... Quorum does amazing stuff with uh, just the visuals and and everything that goes into this world he's creating, um, and and just it's just ridiculous. This movie it is insane, uh, it's intense, but also taking place in the peacefulness of space. Um, it's it's an, an amazing movie and it's an amazing achievement. And Quarone is one of the best directors we have today. So that's my number one. You know what's kind of strange as a high school video teacher? I have teenagers who really love Interstellar and really hate Gravity, Ugh. which makes no sense. I feel like that is no. a generational divide. Somewhere along the way, people now under the age of 25 love Interstellar over Gravity, which makes no sense to me. I think the thing is that everybody loves Christopher Nolan, and they will worship anything he does. But <laughs> There's Gravity, a lot of yeah. people that love the prestige, too. Yeah, for yes. some reason. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Gravity. Yeah, I mean, watching that in the theater was insane. I mean, I, I, yeah, that's a movie that you understood the physics of it. Like everything made sense. Like it was, like I said, like on a, the previous podcast, it was, it's science reality. Do you think Gravity will go down as one of the last, like, truly theatrical experiences? I mean, we're never, we're never replicating what movies used to be. You had to see that in a theater. You had to see that on an IMAX screen. That was a must-go-to-movie-theater event that will never happen again. I don't know. I, I, I think there's there's the potential that there will still be some of those. I'd argue that that uh, that Dune could be one of those, even though you two didn't see it in the theater. Mm. I, I think, think the, a lot of it, a lot is added to it by seeing it in the theater. I think the last one will go down as 1917, but Gravity mm. was one of the last. Yeah, because Gravity is one that they, yeah, you need the spectacle, you need to be absorbed in the emptiness of space and everything that's going on. Yeah. Like, that's what makes Koran great. And yet potentially his best film was a straight to Netflix. So uh, <laughs> that, which again shows the brilliance of Koran. Well, I, and Do I, any of us actually think that though? Like Terry, your favorite of his is obviously Children of Men, right? No, I'd say Roma. 
Really? Was you were like the biggest fan of Children of Men I've ever met. <laughs> I, I do love Children of Men. Roma was, was my number one of that year, though. Okay. Children it's, of Men could have made this list, too. I would have picked A Little Princess from his filmography, but that's also in the same direction as Secret Garden. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into those honorable mentions. Todd. Uh, well, so, let's go. Let's go five to one first, and then we'll do honorable mentions. So, okay, my number five was Dallas Buyers Club by Jean-Marc Vallée. Number four, Leon the Professional by Luc Besson. Number three, Sicario by Denis Villeneuve. Number two, Broke Right Mountain by Ang Lee. And number one, of course, The House That Jack Built by <laughs> Lars von Trier. Of course. All right, Zach. Number five was The Secret Garden by Agnieszka Holland. Number four, The House of Sand and Fog, directed by Vadim Perlman. Number three, Life and Nothing More by Antonio uh, Mendez Esparza. Number two, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans by F.W. Murnau. And number one, Paris, Texas, Vim Vendors. Kurt would agree. All right, for me, number five, Rescue Dawn by Werner Herzog. Number four, The Two Popes by Fernando Mireas. Number three, Life of Pi by Ang Lee. Number two, The Favorite by Yorgos Lanthimos. And number one, Gravity by Alfonso Cuaron. Todd, honorable we mentions. We covered a lot of countries. We did. <laughs> That's good. Uh, okay, so I had Chinatown because Roman Polanski did make uh, some yeah. movies outside the yeah. U.S. Uh, my Dinner with Andre was on the list uh, as well as Gravity. Uh, Birdman. Yeah, I think it's probably my favorite English language uh, in Yara 2 movie. Uh, call, me, yeah. call Me By Your Name. I'm Kind of surprised nobody mentioned that. Um, the Lobster. The Neon Demon, because obviously it's awesome. And the one I was like hesitant about is Once Upon a Time in America, because oh, all these movies were shot in Italian, but they were dubbed into English, but then shot reshot with like American actors. I don't know. I mean, th there's a gray area there, so I didn't include it, but that would that probably would have been my number one. Nice. Zach? I didn't think of Once Upon a Time in America. That's a good pick. Um, I had uh, Breaking the Waves, The Favorite, The Rider, uh, Straight Time, Ulu Grossbard, although technically Dustin Hoffman, uncredited, really directed that movie. Round Midnight, Bertrand Tavernier, who made a few other English language films. In the Fade, Some Like It Hot, um, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Lassie Halster made some good American movies before completely uh. selling out, and obviously Showgirls. I mean, if we're really talking about capturing America by a foreigner, Paul Verhoeven has a better perspective than anyone else. All right. Well, Did you say in the fade. Wait, was that for another director or what? <laughs> yeah, that that was Fatih Akin. That that wasn't in English. That was like oh. nominated for best foreign film, wasn't it? I thought. Oh, okay. Never mind. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So the three movies that I had in my top 100 that qualified were Brokeback Mountain, Arrival, and Chinatown. Um, and then the other ones I had, I had Children of Men. I said Babel and Birdman. Abul. Bobby. Abul. Uh, uh, Shape of Water, I, I threw on there, um, even though I, his best is probably Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, and The Pianist, which I mm. probably would have been right there. It should have been right there too, maybe even cracking the list. But, but you forgot about it. No, I had so I had Chinatown on my list, and then at the last minute, I'm like, no, I'm gonna discount all the top hundreds, 
and forgot that I had mm. another Polanski movie in my honorable mention that I didn't put in. Okay, time to guess Adam's list. Todd? See, this is the hard part. I don't know if he if he made any of the qualifications we did or not. Uh, so this is going to be interesting. Number five, I have Call Me By Your Name. Number four, Snowpiercer. Number three, Leon the Professional. Number two, Drive. And number one, The Revenant. Oh. Okay. You can't right. change your list now, Zach. <laughs> Zach. I already changed it earlier. Number five, Leon the Professional. Number four, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Number three, Brokeback Mountain. Number two, Drive. And number one, Blade Runner 2049. Since he, since that was his he number one last year. Make, he made foreign films? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fireman's Ball. Well, before before that? Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. I, I've got one on my list that might not actually work, but we're gonna but you'll tell me if it doesn't. All right, number five, gravity, number four, the revenant, number three, Okja. Uh is that a is that a an English language movie by Bong Joon Ho? Yeah. Would that count? It's got Tilda Swinton in it, yeah. I looked, he's got that as a higher rating than Snowpiercer, so I went with it. Uh number two, call me by your name, and number one, Chinatown. Oh, All boy. right, here's his list. Drive uh, is going to be on his list. <laughs> honorable mentions. He has. Oh, oh, this is interesting. It looks like he went by. Did he go by director? It look. I think he went director that makes English movies instead of necessarily movies by English by non English directors. Anyways, so his honorable mentions are Yorgos, Yorgos Lanthimos for the Lobster. John Woo for Face Off and Alfonso Cuaron for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which is another wow. one that you can go with. Um, number five, Bong Joon-ho for Snowpiercer. Yes. Uh, saw this at the Grand with Todd. It's a great film that gives my Soylent Green vibes. Yeah. It gives me Soylent Green vibes. That's not yeah. fair. He you gave, saw he, it with Todd. That's he gave all right. This is he only gave, gave it three stars. I know, but I he knew gave he was it three, and it. he gave Oak just <laughs> three and a half. So that I I throw the BS flag on that, Adam. Number four, Alfonso Cuarón for Children of Men. I love the setup of this hmm. film, and it delivers on its premise. Number three, Guillermo del Toro for Hellboy Two: The Golden Army. Wow, that is a perfect Adam pick. One of the most underrated comic book sequels of all time, and maybe in my top ten comic book movies too. Number two, Alejandro G in Yara 2 for The Revenant. When I experienced it on the big screen, I felt so cold and awestruck. Might not be the best Leo performance, but magic was made with Yara 2. And number one, he says, Denis Villeneuve for Sicario, Blade Runner 2049, Prisoners, Dune, and Enemy. Which could, we didn't miss any the of spot. those. I it's said Blade so, Runner oh, no, no, no. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Hold on. I read it wrong. It's for Sicario. And he says, Blade Runner 2049, Prisoners, Dune, and Enemy could be um, in this spot, or could be at this spot because he's so talented, giving it to Sicario because that the theatrical experience had me mm -hmm. on my on the edge of my seat, and it never let go. Sicario is an intense, heart-pounding, disturbing ride. So he we went with well, Sicario. I mean, at least he did one per director. At least we know that. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we thought of it. And but he lists I I, I was thrown off because I sat there and looked at it and he listed five movies by Villeneuve. All right, so I, I got I got two. I got one. But I got the right director for number one. 
How is Call Me By Your Name not on his list? I know. That, that Come is really, on. Or not even mention. And no or, mention or, of Winding Refn. I yeah. mean, that, that was a good call Todd, by you guys. You should lose a point for that top for guaranteeing it. You That was too cocky. Well, maybe he didn't include his top 100. I don't know if... It, I don't remember if the Revenant was on his top 100 or not. But I got two. I got Snowpiercer and I got the Revenant. So, I mean, I win, right? Well, yeah, not with can. a handicap. Justin, Justin and you lose a game. Point. You lose a point for, for, for guaranteeing drive. I think I win because I got Blade Runner 2049. And you did you, not and get that. that. That's like at least... That's at most half a point. That's like saying I get a point for him saying Snowpiercer. I got, because yeah. Bong Joon-ho. I said Snowpiercer. That... You, yeah, yeah. I think Todd <laughs> the wins. Lesser... He got two of them. I got one and a half points. Zach, you got half a point. Half a half a one right. Anyway, thirty-seven and a half for me. <laughs> Twenty-two for Zach and nineteen for Terry. I think Todd should lose extra points when he a, a list a movie appears on Adam's list that he saw with Todd. <laughs> that's just that, that's that just reeks. There aren't that many uh, of those. I'd say maybe less than ten. That but he gave it three him. stars. Like, there's no way we would have we would have predicted Snowpiercer. But that's the one that stands out. Nobody it's remembers like, Okja. It's like the Braves World Series. It's fraudulent. Nobody remembers Okja. Ever, like Snowpiercer, it's like obviously, oh, Bong Joon Ho, he's the talk of the town. Like, what movie did he make? Oh yeah, Snowpiercer, and that spawned a TV series. Plus, <laughs> I don't think Adam really understood the list. If we're if we're being honest, like this was a he different interpretation. I gave him a more specific outline than I gave you guys. And he texted <laughs> me this morning to double check the list or the the qualifications. So he knew what Whatever. he knew what he was doing, and he did it. All right. What stupid movie are you going to sign us next time, Todd? Well, that, that's that that's is not other... how it works. <laughs> Those are not the rules. That that that's trivia. So let's get into trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Void is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. Where Todd did assign us a movie to watch. Is that stick still funny that Zach doesn't understand the rules? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> well, when the same person always ends up winning, it, it yeah. Yeah, what yeah. The when, rules when are not the same that person wins both of them, it, it, it makes it, it, it I could see it being unclear. Okay. Maybe I'll give Adam the Adam the choice to what, what our next list is. There we go. All right. Um Todd assigned Zach and us, uh, Zach and I, wow, Zach and I swingers to watch. You only teach English for a living. I, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm not starting this one because I've started every review we've done so far. So you want to make it three for three? No, you're talking about swingers. Tell us all about it. All right. So I want to go on a little digression for a second. So, you know, Seinfeld is now on Netflix. Go ahead and watch it and enjoy how outdated it is. There's some great interviews on YouTube with Jason Alexander uh, for the Academy, for some sort of Academy archive of TV or something. And he talks about his inspiration for the role of George Costanza. And there's one interview that he says where he says the first six episodes or so, he was just doing a Woody Allen impersonation. And at a certain point, he did an episode where he didn't believe the storyline that George was doing. And so he went to Larry David and was like, look, this just isn't working. I don't believe this character would ever do it. And then Larry David told, told him, well, yeah, I did it. That, that happened to me. And then something clicked in Jason Alexander's brain. Oh, this is Larry. Al this is Larry David. This is Larry David's world. That was my reaction watching Swingers. Oh, 
This is Todd. This is Todd's world. If you uh, could right? create some sort of AI robot and like put in, type in Todd movie, this is what you get. This is Sideways meets Leaving Las Vegas with a bit of boiler room and diner and rounders. I mean, <laughs> this has this movie has the most Todd DNA I've ever seen. My goodness, do I even need this to? Why I want to deep dive it? <laughs> but you guys haven't seen it. <laughs> Damn it! I just, I, I just was like, wow, wow, a glimpse into this is like being John Malkovich. The experience that John Cusack goes through in this movie is akin to the experience we went through watching this movie. It's not John going into your... Yeah, he's not in it. No, John Favreau. John Favreau is in it. There you go. I did have a hard time making sense. You can ask my wife. I had a hard time making sense of the characters. I definitely confused a few of them. <laughs> I got Ron Livingston confused with John Favreau in a few scenes, and I was sober. Okay, so the plot of Swingers is oh, let's just describe the perfect Todd movie. You get uh, two broke actors, struggling up-and-coming actors in Hollywood. One's cocky, one's neurotic. They both love gambling and partying and alcohol. And they go to Vegas. And uh, my favorite scene in the movie, I will say, <coughs> the best scene in the movie is that first poker table that they go to. Blackjack. That is... Blackjack. Oh, excuse me, blackjack, blackjack, my bad. Blackjack. You're, you're right, you're right. That first blackjack table, when it's like Favreau is making all the rookie <laughs> mistakes. He, he doesn't lay the money on the table. He, he doesn't realize it's a one hundred dollar minimum yeah. bet, and, and the uh, 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 if we're gonna do a deep dive, I would give the uh, highest war performance the the blackjack dealer. That great facial expressions, um, just a nice scene, and then the little old lady getting a twenty one. That was a good moment. <sighs> Other than that, I don't know if I really want to get into it. Do I feel do I feel punchy today? Do I feel like starting World War Three? I, I, I don't know. I thought this movie kind of sucked. It. it it is just, it's so, I mean, okay, so there's so so much of a Sideways vibe, and I get that this movie came out eight years before Sideways, but man, Sideways just did this material so much better, okay? You got the neurotic friend, you got the cocky wannabe actor, but you know what? Sideways was about two desperate characters who were a little bit older, a little bit wiser, at least they thought they were. There was a little bit more subtlety with, with the, the female characters and the emphasis on wine. This movie, which looks like it was made for about $14, was is just like one sort of semi-comic setup from one scene to another. It looks like midway through the production, the, the cast and crew fell in love with NHL 95 and just wanted to play it. Um, and, uh, it, you know, um, I... It, it just kind of sucked. I really was not a fan of it. I, I, I have a lot of notes here. Again, I don't want to I don't want to start a war. Uh, just your money, baby. I, I just I don't want to hear that over and over in every single scene. As if Heather Graham would be so bad at this. I mean, she is. First of all, she she swoops in at the end of the movie, even though she's like the third person listening to the credits. She's only in the last 15 minutes. And, and really, we're to believe that she has a hard time picking up people. And she's so into John Favreau because he's such a Lafario Romeo in this movie. He's such a catch that she calls him the next day. Give me a break. I think Roller Girl has higher standards. And uh, gosh, this movie, it, it was horribly lit, horribly shot. It's always a red flag when, when you got the words directed and photographed by the director, <laughs> Doug Lyman. Uh, this yeah, movie the, was the director of what? 
Mr. and Mrs. Smith. The born, the born, born identity. identity. He got a lot yeah. better. This was like a student film. No, this, this was a student film for movie. all of them. <laughs> I know this movie has a, a cult following. I know it's a super Todd movie, but I, I just there's only so much I can take of it. How is he a comedian in this movie? He's not funny. <laughs> Does he tell one joke? <clears throat> um, he's he's the awkward comedian. I mean, have you ever been more fired up to go to Vegas than when you're watching them? Be like. Like when they get in their suits and they're just like Vegas as they're driving there, yeah. And then and then like an hour later, Vegas, yeah. Another moment <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna Vegas. I want to call Todd's hypocrisy <laughs> also because this movie has blatant ripoffs of Reservoir Dogs. It is self-referential, and yet oh, Todd, call, Todd calls yeah. out the Hangover's uh, blatant ripoff of Rain Man as lame. And this movie did the exact same thing. So everything in the Hangover is lame, though. That's no, no, this hypocritical. Movie, so i, I actually appreciated that okay i appreciated the fact that it was like no 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 you can't be you can't put yourself below you know referencing other pop culture things and then it immediately goes and references it and uh and does it i thought that was cool i i i'm giving i'm giving it three and a half stars oh my god uh, yes because <laughs> thank you this is, it, it's it's just so much fun and entertaining uh, and I mean NHL '95. That that's Todd. That's our Jeremy that's our, 2K, that yeah, was our guy, right? That, that's our two K five. I think I've actually played NHL '95. My uh, my principal was a uh, is Canadian, which is also how I know about Boxing Day. And uh, one time we we did something, and he brought his Sega Genesis, and we sat down and played NHL '95. Um, not gonna lie. Anyways. Um, yeah, it, it's it's just it's just fun. This is like this is is Miles and Jack. It is so like, sideways. Like ten yes, years that's before not a good sideways. Thing. But it but it happened ten years before sideways. This like the this only is... time I've ever liked like Vince Vaughn in a movie. Oh, he's oh, so, so unlikable in this movie. Such a pain <laughs> in the ass. When he gets up on that diner table and starts shouting at people, I just want to punch him. All right, I'll. I'll... I, I'm just looking at the IMDb page right now, and the the trailer still frame it has up is all you need to know about the movie right there. Like, <laughs> that's all you need to know about the movie. What's You've the got show? Vince Vaughn just trying to look cool, and John Favreau is pissed off <laughs> because that's how he spends yeah. the whole movie. It, it, it just looking at that freeze frame makes me laugh. Um, no, it's it's so mm. much fun. It it is a ton of fun, yet it also has a lot of heart and um it's not and, two tons uh, of fun like like well, cammy yes it, it it definitely is is a product of the 90s there there's there's that side oh yeah it's too, reality but... bites there's a lot of that in there i mean I, yeah I get it's that. a great call but yeah. i don't know this movie for me they yeah i mean i obviously see more of myself in the john Travar character than any other character ever including miles but i don't know i mean Everything about it, like Doug said, it's a perfect Todd movie. The Vegas stuff and uh, the wisecracking side character. I love the awkward like phone conversation that he has or doesn't have with his girl. Like that that is something Zach eats up. Like that is some straight like high fidelity shit. That is some like punch truck love shit. Wait, that, which that scene is... are you talking about? When he leaves the message on the answering machine? Yeah, when he leaves like four different messages. And <laughs> I thought that like, scene went on yeah, way too long. Yeah, this isn't working out. We've been we talking got, too much. Cause... We got the joke. It went on Yeah, I know. That, that, is, that is straight out of the Zach playbook right there. I can't believe you didn't like this movie. It's one of the best movies in 1996. 
I think if we had watched it in Vegas 10 years ago, I would have dug it. Yeah, I mean, I can see that Vegas you're, you're coming along I, to it for the first time too, too late. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why, that's why I don't, I don't want to start a bet. I can totally understand why Todd loves this movie. There's a chance I would have loved it if I had seen it at the right age. I just don't think I, I don't know. I just, and then there's the thing about real men don't like quiche. Like what the hell? I think quiche is delicious. <laughs> Screw this movie. I also, I can smell this movie. Can't you smell this movie? Can't you smell his apartment? Yeah, I mean, but the, I'm I mean, tired of that every smell. movie in the 80s, though. Like, that's you can smell the cigarettes, the coffee and cigarettes. That's what it smells like. It tastes like cigarettes. There's Anyways. a Forrest Gump quote. That is nothing like this movie, though. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right. So, Zach, what, what's your star rating on this? I'm afraid I don't want to say it out loud. I'll text okay. it to you, Terry. I, I don't. I don't. Are you serious? Right. You're going to give this less than two stars? I I don't want to say it out loud. I don't. I don't want to offend you. I just because I I, <laughs> I I can respect it. I just I I will say hey, here's you the best gave thing Margaret about the movie. one star it, and it makes me respect Margaret. Podcast. It makes me respect <laughs> Margaret more, even though Margaret is now twice as long as this movie. That is a good thing about this movie. It is a 90-minute movie. However, there are two sequences in this movie that feel like they're 90 minutes at least, which is the phone answering machine scene and then the swing dancing scene goes on. I can't believe you on. don't like the awkwardness of the of the the phone scene. That is oh painful. That is not not funny. Don't you? I felt like I felt like every day on this shoot they just came up with a new gag. Like that last scene, that felt like they came up with that in about 30 minutes and. Supposedly, the movie's based on John Favreau's actual experiences, and Ron Livingston and Vince Vaughn were his buddies, and they were the ones getting him through it. And so that they played themselves essentially in this movie. I mean, that's that's not surprising. <laughs> I, I don't. Know. What are your thoughts on Made? Is is Made sort of like a spiritual sequel to this? No, it, Made is nothing like this. It's like a mob movie almost. But I mean, Made is actually watchable. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So I'm giving it three and a half. Zach is giving it to be determined. I'm guessing one and a half stars is Zach's rating. Yeah, okay. I don't. I won't give it a star rating. I'll just kind of leave it in in the nebulous. It's just. It's just. It's. It's. The same he's going to do with with Alpha Dog next week when we when we keep that that. <laughs> no, I like it. Well, I haven't seen it in a while, but I, I definitely like Alpha Dog more in this movie. Okay. All right, Todd, you're hosting trivia. What are we doing here? Oh, I have one category. I mean, it's not that interesting, but it'll be uh, how much you pay attention to the most significant pop culture thing in the world, which is the Marvel movies. And this is the 17 directors other than Chloe Zhao that have directed a Marvel movie. God. Okay. And you can, like, if you, you have to get the actual group of directors if there was more than one on the same movie. That shouldn't be that hard. 17 is not that much, considering there's been how many? Like 27 or something Marvel movies now? I don't know the number. I'm just saying. But since Zack sucks and didn't like swingers, I'm starting with Terry. John Favreau. John Favreau is a correct answer from of, the great movie called Swingers. One of two names I have written down. Um, the Russo Brothers. I will accept that. Anthony and Joe Russo directed Joss Whedon. several. Joss Whedon. Jo Joss Whedon. Who is not the same as J.J. Abrams as we established on the last podcast or one before. And Chloe Zhao doesn't count. Chloe Zhao does not count. Um, 
I'm trying to think of Shang Chi and Black Widow. I can't. I can't believe I can't remember who directed those movies. We just re- reviewed them. Um, I know the one of them is a a Zach top war movie of the 2010s. Because I, 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 I can tell, I can tell that Zach needs <laughs> needs the points. Oh yeah, the, I, the, I'm, I'm. He one, forgot. I'm he forgot about. The table. He forgot about the the his top war movie of the 2010s, and he didn't put it on his list, and. They directed Black Widow. God damn it! I I Doug Lyman. It's a four, did, it's a did, four letter war movie. David Gordon Green. No, not made. Not made. Not made in the. United I don't know, States. Terry. I I defer, Terry. Let's hear your list. I got nothing. Kate Shortland. Yeah. Oh, Kate Shortland that's right. Did, okay. Did Good call. I had that. All right. So so Zach's done. Is I'm that done. the idea? Tap okay. Yeah. So let me see if I can run this table. All right. So um. So we started with Iron Man was John Favreau, then Louis Leterrier was uh, Incredible Hulk. Who? Um, <laughs> then Favreau Leterrier? did did Iron Man two, and then you had Thor, oh, ta- 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 which was Wakiti. Kenneth Branagh. Oh, uh, yeah. You had uh, Captain America: First Avenger was Joe Johnston. Um, That's and the then, one I didn't think I was going to get. And then you had Joss Whedon did Avengers. Uh, then you had. Um, uh, 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 Shane Black did Iron Man three. Um, you had uh Tate Taylor do uh Thor Dark World. Um, that is incorrect. Is wasn't it Tate Taylor? Alan the, Taylor. Alan Taylor. Well, a Taylor. I so, got yeah. Terry wins six to. Hold on, one. hold on. Let me keep going here. Let me keep going here. <laughs> no, James Gunn. James Gunn did Guardians of Galaxy. Oh, they're very different directors. Um. Well, fine, fine. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, had James uh, Gunn. James Gunn, you had um, the uh, oh the uh, um, Fleck and Taylor did uh, Captain Marvel. Um, nope. yeah. So uh, Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden. Well, oh, Bowden, yeah. okay, that the, that group, the Half Nelson duo, did did mm-hmm. Captain Marvel. Um, yeah, YTT did Ragnarok. Um, Russo brothers did three of them. Um, Civil War was oh no four of them because they did Civil War too. Um, I think that's all I got. What did I miss? So you're missing Ryan. Coogler. Oh, Derrickson, Scott Derrickson did oh, Doctor Strange. Coogler, Ryan Coogler did Black 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 Panther. Yeah. Uh, you said James Gunn. No. Yeah. Um, yeah I did. Peyton Reed did two. Oh, did the Ant Man movies? Yeah. Oh, and um uh, um um Webb Webb did. No, who did no, Spider Man? John John Watts. Watts. And that's I, that's the only one. He did that movie w. called what was it called? Cop? Was that the Kevin Bacon movie? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like you should have done a second category of directors of the Sopranos, just so I could kick Terry's ass, you know, like Terrence Winter and Alan Coulter and Alan Taylor. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Alan Taylor. Was he was he a director on that? The second was I wrote down Louis Leterrier, I knew I was gonna beat Zach. <laughs> Yeah, that was the one I was like, okay, you know, Terry's got this. All right, so I get to sign you guys' stuff next week. Awesome. Or in two weeks. Okay. It is time for quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Uh, I'll go first. Uh, My quote comes from Swingers. Um, yes. it, it, it is, it is from, uh, is it Trent? That's his name, right? The, the Vince Vaughn character. Yes. yes. Uh, and he says, I want you to remember this face. 
this is the guy behind the guy behind the guy. Mm-hmm. That's like the stupidest thing I've ever heard anybody say, but I, I guess he thought it was cool. It was so money. It was, it was, so it was money. That was money, baby. Um, <clears throat> that my my I think my favorite line of that was "Hold your horses, Voltaire." <laughs> yeah. There's no way she understands that reference. But... I didn't understand that reference. Age of Enlightenment pancakes. What is he talking uh, about? It's, it's a beautiful movie. He he's a horrible comedian. All right. No kidding. <laughs> Zach, go for All right, it. J- just for that horrible trivia, I'm giving Swingers one and a half stars officially. That was you're welcome god deserves that my quote comes from roger ebert's review of swingers not his print review but the siskel and ebert episode uh where uh siskel gave a thumbs up to it and ebert's like you know i i'm gonna give it thumbs up but i wouldn't walk more than three and a half blocks to see it which is a great way of uh giving a movie review and then he's also added on a cold night i'd have to think about it but he gave it a thumbs up and you're getting rid one and a half stars. Yes, he did give it th- a, a rare disagreement with Raj. I, I feel like this podcast is worth about three walking three and a half blocks for, but maybe not on the cold night. All okay. right. Todd? Mine comes from the best uh, English language film by a foreign speaking director, which is, of course, The House of Jack Built. And it, it is a, something that reminds me of Dexter. Which is he says the old the old cathedrals often have sublime artworks hidden away by the darkest corners of God, for only God to see. The same goes for murder, and that could easily be the same like narration of Indexer, which I can't wait to watch it. I it could also that, be that should have been Lars von Trier's internal thoughts and in like his diary entry, which That's is basically true. just the screenplay for the House of Jack. But he doesn't put himself into his own documentary. No, like, he, he uses like he uses stand-ins, but uh, it's it's definitely Lars's voice. But Matt Dillon is uh, is uh, you know better than hearing Lars. I don't know. I kind of like hearing Stellan Skarsgård as Lars in uh, *Nymphomaniac*. All right. Well, with that, we're going to draw this podcast to a <laughs> yes, close. Please. Just end it now, please. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, we'll be back at you next week with a deep dive. Until then. Have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together. Your money, baby. You're so money, you don't even know it. Ugh.